coming up next on the GeoTrack podcast. We were far more on edge. We were watching any and all threats because now New Orleans had seen what these storms could do. Prior to that, you have to go back to a generation when my parents were younger in Betsy Camille more so. Betsy more so for uh, New Orleans and then Camille more so for the, the Mississippi coast. You know, it was a whole generation where we didn't really yeah. see what these storms could do. Katrina showed us we are vulnerable to the waters of the Gulf. We can see this water come surging in. Sure. We can see the, the winds rip apart the Superdome and rip apart some of the places that we thought we could evacuate to and be safe. 17 years ago today, Hurricane Katrina slammed the northern Gulf Coast with a horrific catastrophe. Many people died in Metro New Orleans when the levees failed and salt water blasted into the city. In coastal Mississippi, Katrina generated the highest storm surge on record in the Western Hemisphere, reaching 28 feet in Hancock County. The massive coastal flood inflicted severe damage on the Alabama coastline and produced the fourth highest water level on record up to that time, all the way east in Pensacola, Florida. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. Last week, Chris Franklin, chief meteorologist of WWL-TV in New Orleans, joined us to look back at Katrina in GeoTrek podcast number 42. Chris was a young meteorologist only one year out of college and working in New Orleans when Katrina struck. He shared about how he forecasted Katrina's landfall from Mobile, Alabama, and then eventually made his way back into New Orleans after spending some extended time in northern Mississippi with family. He reflected about living and working in difficult and sometimes dangerous conditions back in post-Katrina New Orleans. This included working behind armed guards when his building got power back and was able to accomplish the new staff where he worked at WVUE-TV. This is GeoTrek Podcast 43 and episode number two in a two-part series with Chris Franklin. In this episode, he continues to reflect on how he survived and adapted to life in New Orleans post-Katrina. He also shares insights about how forecasting weather has changed over the past 17 years, as well as how response to storms in Metro New Orleans has changed. If you have not yet listened to episode 42, I'd recommend that you start there to get to know Chris's backstory and how he ended up forecasting forecasting the weather in post-Katrina New Orleans. Before we get to this episode, I wanted to tell you a bit about the podcast. GeoTrek travels the world to find stories about the relationship between people and nature. Our stories investigate the impact of extreme weather, disasters, and hazards on both individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you understand better how the world works so you can take actions to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient from all the extremes that Mother Nature can throw at us. Hey, and one more thing, a quick favor to ask you. We'd really appreciate if you would subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Now we're going to join Chris Franklin back in New Orleans. We actually overlapped about 45 seconds of audio from last week's podcast so you can reestablish the context of our conversation. Enjoy. The following months and years after Katrina, you were reminded of that storm every single day. And it was really years until we were no longer reminded on a daily basis of just how bad it was and what we had all gone through. I mean, it was definitely a, a mental health um, concern as well here because it was it, it drained on you. And this wasn't one of those storms where it moves in, it moves out, it passes a couple of days later, you've cleaned up your front lawn and you're, you're back to normal and you've completely forgotten about it, which has really been our history since the 60s with hurricanes. And now here we have Katrina, which then we're kind of reminded of on a, on a daily basis for many years of just, just what we went through. Chris, your story, the personal part of your story that stands out, it's so much like so many other people's story that have a deep connection with New Orleans. They want to be there, but then there's this upheaval and this period of uncertainty of I'm leaving. I don't know for how long I will, I want to come back. It could be weeks. It could be months. It could be longer. It sounds like you got back after Thanksgiving that year uh, you know, then you continued to provide weather coverage for the city beyond that. Did you find other meteorologists, other news journalism people? Were there many that left and never came back? A lot. Uh, and most of the ones that, that did, um, I don't think were, and I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, how many of them had left, 
there weren't a lot that were local. May have been a couple that just had had, and and there were that you know in the but beyond the the journalism uh, news news group, there were a lot of people that evacuated to Atlanta, Houston, and still to this day they're oh that was a Katrina baby they you know we evacuated, born in New Orleans but we stayed in Houston and they grew up in Houston and we consider ourselves Houstons but we still had that New Orleans connection so there were still definitely a lot of folks that that just couldn't handle coming back. And, and, and to be honest, there are a lot of folks that just don't have the means of coming back, whatever they were able to collect an insurance and, and whatnot. They were able to make a life for themselves outside of New Orleans. And they knew trying to come back and rebuild their home would have just been too cost prohibitive. And they did stay away. But we, we definitely saw a decline. I mean, we've seen a decline in just our population in general. So definitely in our smaller news community, there were a lot of folks that, that, that left to just after what we saw, what we experienced, and they just couldn't imagine handling it. Now, I, I will say, you know, at the age now uh, of 40 with my family and two young kids, if I had gone through Katrina now and having lost my home, it it may have been, I don't know, it may be tough to to say, yeah, let's rebuild everything and let's start over from scratch. I don't know. As a, as a 23-year-old with an apartment that I'm renting and no real personal responsibility at that age, it was easy. Yeah, I'm going to stay. My apartment was fine. I, you know, wasn't that bad. I can sleep sure. on a floor somewhere for months on end and I can work in a drafty building for a while yeah. and use the bathroom outside. It's not a big deal, but you know, and some of the older folks, they, they did, or, or kind of use that opportunity to say, Hey, you know what? I think this is a great time to retire. I've, <laughs> this, this yeah. was my, my cornerstone type storm or, or uh, my, my pinnacle. And I think I'm good. I'm done here. So we yeah, definitely then, saw some of that. For sure. And then, you know, when you have kids in the mix, a lot of times people say, well, I want to stay, but my kids need to be in school. And, you know, we could go and live near family and they could be in school next week, right? If we stay in the city. I mean, that just, it, it, it really shook everything up for really months to years, right? All of my brothers were, you know, I was, I'm the oldest of the four boys and all of my brothers were in school at the time and their schools all flooded. Uh, where we went to high school is in Gentilly. It flooded, Brother Martin. And so for a time, my brothers were at school in Baton Rouge. And then when we finally did come back to New Orleans, uh, they had what was called a transitional school. And the Archdiocese of New Orleans, we went to Catholic school, set up satellite schools at the other schools that weren't flooded, mainly in Jefferson Parish. And so they would go to school in the morning and the the students of that school would then go to school that evening and night. So it would almost be a, you know, 18 hour school day for one half of the school. And then the other half of the school, uh, we all went to um, either all male or all female schools down in New Orleans. And so they were mixing the 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 genders as well. It was just basically how do we get these kids in school and have somewhat of a normal year. But even now it was, oh, that they were the Katrina class. They graduated in Katrina or they had their school year just completely screwed up by, by Katrina. And I, I, I was glad that I was already out of school because yeah. I don't know if I would have been able to. And what's interesting is so many of the um, colleges then started doing remote classes. Yeah. And, and a lot of them stuck with that for a while. And, you know, and it ended up turning out to where, Maybe it was uh, we were ahead of the times because then suddenly COVID, we were all doing remote everything. But in New Orleans, it was like, oh, yeah, I've done this before. This wasn't that bad at all. It's like, oh, I got to stay home and go to class. Yeah, I've already done this. This wasn't. I've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of people in Baton Rouge that say, yeah, I did my junior year of high school in Baton Rouge. And then, you know, went back to New Orleans. It, it just it just really uh, it just forced people to really have this. Um, you know, experience where they're, they're uprooted and it, it upheaval in their life. You know, when people move to the Gulf coast, they often think the problem with hurricanes is the day of the storm, a tree is going to fall on you or you're going to be drowned in flood water. For a lot of people, the day of the storm wasn't the worst part. It's the months and years afterwards that your whole life has been changed in an instant, right? Uh, where you go to school, where you work, where you live. And, and, you know, and like we said, for, most of our recent history before Katrina, it was just that. It was it was, uh, it was kind of a minor inconvenience. There were no upheavals of schools, upheavals of neighborhoods. It was an inconvenience for a couple of days. You had friends that, oh, my God, yeah, they had a tree on their house. They it wasn't life-altering. Right. Yeah. And it, 
it wasn't the widespread life altering. And I think as of now, and it's what's been interesting about having been in New Orleans growing up before Katrina and then in the professional capacity after, people here take the storms far more seriously than we ever did before. And there is kind of that more lazy, um, casual way about New Orleans that it's, yeah, it's, yeah, you call me when it's a cat three, then maybe I'll be worried about it now. Wait, there's a thunderstorm in the Gulf. Where is this going? How is it? How bad is it? Be? People are far more, maybe not worrisome, but they're, they're far more, they, they pay more attention to these, sure. these type of storms now which they didn't before. Chris, I wanted to ask you about that. I moved to the Gulf Coast to South Louisiana in 2008. I had been there less than a month and here comes Hurricane Gustav. I was with the LSU hurricane team. We were going out to deploy uh, sensors in the path of the storm. We went down I-10 and we get to the Gramercy exit. The cops are closing it not to sit, not to protect us because there was contraflow. There were, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people coming out of Metro New Orleans, mandatory evacuation. The response was huge. This was a Cat 2 hurricane three years after Katrina. It sounds like you're saying the response to these storms post-Katrina was a lot different than maybe pre-Katrina. No question. I think more folks, especially Gustav, where we're only three years removed, we were far more on edge we were watching any and all threats because now New Orleans had seen what these storms could do. Prior to that, you have to go back to a generation when my parents were younger in, in Betsy Camille more so, Betsy more so for uh, New Orleans and then Camille more so for the, the Mississippi coast. But, you know, it was a whole generation where we didn't really yeah. see what these storms could do. Katrina showed us we are vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to the to the waters of the Gulf. We can see this water come surging in. Sure. We can see the the winds rip apart the Superdome and rip apart some of the places that we thought we could evacuate to and be safe. And so I think a lot more folks were on edge. And certainly with Gustav, we we took that storm more seriously. And I still think we are. We are kind of being removed from that a little bit. Uh, but I think Ida was was kind of that eye-opening experience that, uh, folks, we didn't enact um, any kind of evacuation. Ida was one of those unique storms. We talked about this at the hurricane conference, uh, the tropical weather conference, that, you know, we didn't get a whole lot of heads up. And, and maybe had we known a day earlier with Ida, maybe an evacuation would have been ordered and maybe would have gone through contraflow. But um, I know for me, people ask, well, what would you do or what if? What would you do if you were me? And I said, well, I can't tell you what to do. What I can tell you is that I'm advising my family to evacuate. Sure. And sure. so I think folks took that and said, okay, we're leaving. Because when I told my wife and kids, no, you need to go, other folks, that's what I said on air. I said, people want to know what to do. I'll tell you what I'm telling my family to do, and I'm telling them to leave. And so I think folks are taking these storms a little more seriously than maybe the more casual approach we had had for uh, decades before Katrina. To catch our listeners up a little bit of housekeeping here, Katrina was 2005, Gustav, Cat 2, made landfall out by Grand Isle on two, in 2008. We, we had a storm, Isaac, some some big flood issues on the west end of Lake Pontchartrain and different areas on uh, in, in 2012, on the same day of Katrina's landfall, August 29th, and then also August 29th, 2021, Hurricane Ida. I want to talk a little bit about this with you now. We, we already touched base on it, but again, it was August 29th, 2021, that, that same date. Ida was different though it really blew up rapidly intensified i think the winds increased by 55 miles an hour in that last 24 hours so it made landfall out by grand grand isle as a cat four in parts of i guess the western part of metro new orleans there were sustained hurricane force winds is that right yes the what we call the river parishes so that's a little bit beyond familiar with the geography of orleans parish jefferson parish that are right along the uh lakefront although jefferson parish actually extends down to the coast and Grand Isle. Then as you continue westward, you have St. Charles, St. John, St. James Parish as you're headed toward Baton Rouge, and those are the river parishes. That's where the storm Ida passed right over, still as a weakening three to a two. So you still had uh, significant hurricane force winds in that area, and thankfully the wind field was rather small. We did not have hurricane force sustained winds in Metro New Orleans, from Jefferson Parish to Orleans. We had some damage, uh, but we did not have the hurricane force winds. Storm surge and flooding wasn't as much of an issue with this because it was such a, a uh, um, short duration storm from the time it, uh, you know, the genesis to landfall. Now, in that time, it was able to rapidly intensify. What we've kind of learned is that it takes longer for that storm surge to really build. And that was what the, the issue with Katrina was. 
it had a couple of days where it just sat off of the coast to build up that just record uh, storm surge. So we did not have that in Ida, which is another reason why we could probably touch on this in, in a whole new other podcast is why you can't compare storms and each one is completely sure, different. Sure. So yeah, but, but with Ida, it was kind of that, here we go again, off the Louisiana coast, a rapidly intensifying storm. Uh, you know, I've done a few talks just about the short window from the time that it was just an invest to the time it's making landfall. And it was about five days and it was about three, two to three days out. So you're looking at, you know, 48 to 72 hours is when we finally had that, that more certainty that this is going to be a major hurricane at landfall. Uh, four to five days out, we mentioned it could, it certainly is a possibility. Some of the models were indicating that the hurricane center was still a little bit more conservative with that. Uh, but we were mentioning that it is certainly a possibility. The problem now is we may not get these huge days of a heads up if this is going to be a major hurricane at landfall. So, you know, the city, the state may have to start issuing these evacuation orders, possibly just under the under the the guise of of it's a possibility. Maybe it's not a major hurricane right now, but it could be, or it's a high probability that it will be. And so we need to to err on the the assumption that it will be a major hurricane at landfall. Like with Katrina, we could see this becoming a five, three, four to a five off the coast. This is the time to leave now. With Ida, we didn't have that 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 long window of opportunity to leave. So it was a it was a quick storm. It was a rapidly intensifying storm. But as I uh, we were talking before, uh, the the forecast from the computer models and the National Hurricane Center are almost spot on. Once the models were really able to grab what Ida was going to do. They locked in on that that Port Fouchon to to Grand Isle landfall. They locked in on this intensifying right up to the point of landfall, and that is exactly what happened uh, with the storm. So it sounds like you're saying we didn't have the lead time with Ida that we did in a Katrina or some of these other storms where you have your 72 hour window or something like that. By the time it locked in, uh, I'm thinking that's why they did not do the mandatory evacuation. They just probably felt like they didn't have time to get everyone out. Is that right? Well, and and, and, and I don't know if the talks were, you know, the, the 42 hours of well, yeah, the, the, the hurricane center and the forecasters are saying it might be a major hurricane, but we don't know for certain if it's going to be. So we're going to hold back on issuing a mandatory evacuation. Now, our lower lying areas, the, the areas near the coast and outside of our hurricane risk reduction system, the levee system, those were evacuated. Uh, but for the city itself, you know, kind of look back on it, as I said, if we had had maybe one more day lead time, then perhaps we would have seen those mandatory evacuations issued. I do think even without the mandatory evacuation issued, I still think a vast majority of our population, I've not seen the numbers of the estimates of how many actually evacuated, but I would say the majority of the city, more than 50% certainly uh, did evacuate from Ida. We, we didn't see, and, and, and Ida was completely different uh, with that said, Ida was completely different from Katrina. So we weren't getting reports of folks sure. needing to be rescued knowing who was still in the city. It was more of the inconvenience of folks saying, when are we going to get power back on? When are we going to get power back on? That was probably the, the biggest issue for Metro New Orleans. And then of course, the, down the bayou, as you get toward Homa to the coast and the river parishes, the main, main issue was that you had a major hurricane uh, just pass right over you. Chris, the last five hurricane in the last five hurricane seasons, there have been five hurricanes that rapidly intensified in the last 24 hours before landfall. By that, I mean winds increased by at least 40 miles an hour in that in that last 24 hours. So we're, we're seeing this and all five of those were on, along the Gulf Coast. Has that changed? Do you think the way, you know, people are forecasting, communicating or even responding to to these storms? Certainly, I think communicating and responding. I think we now, whereas maybe in the past, we would be a little bit more hesitant on jumping onto the, you know, couple of computer models indicating that this could be a major hurricane. It may be something that, yeah, we'll see if more of the model runs are saying the same thing. We'll kind of back off on that for now. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what storm it was. It, it may have been Laura that when one of the first models was indicating, a, a, you know, a, a strengthening in the Gulf I, that I kind of jumped on and said, no, this, this, might be and and whereas maybe before I was maybe a bit more conservative with that sure, sure. I think I'm starting to kind of highlight those possibilities sooner and I do think uh residents here with the means to evacuate evacuating is an expensive task 
Sure. Um, and not everyone can do it, but I think those that, that can, I think are maybe heeding that warning a little bit more so than, than ever before. And, and as I said, our technology is, has gotten better. I, I will say just watching uh, this past weekend, Invest 98, the models did a fantastic job indicating yeah. it was not going to do much of anything sure. right up the coast of Texas. And just as it moved inland, it actually started to get that burst of convection near the center and had this sat over the Gulf maybe another uh, maybe five hours at, at, you know, at minimum, we could have maybe seen this be a uh, named a depression just before sure, moving sure. inland. So the model, and I, I will say this was as of Friday, the models had been indicating that. So the, the computer model, the guidance, our technology is far superior than where we were back in 2005. And so the, the models and the meteorologists are much better with this. So I do think we've really stressed that. I think the public has seen that, not just with the tropics, but just in our daily forecasting. Sure. And so I think now when they see us mentioning four days out, hey, just want to let you know, this might not be the official forecast and by official yeah. what's coming in from the Hurricane Center. This is what the models are indicating. This this does need to be taken seriously. Chris, a few times you mentioned the word possibility, and I like that because you're talking likeliness, right? I mean, we, <clears throat> we all love certainty. It's great to say this is probable, this is likely, this will happen. It sounds like you're saying talking about some possibilities and maybe clearly communicating this is not an official forecast. There's still a lot of uncertainty with it, but just tipping off people with to give them a little more lead time, maybe something's possible in the three, four, five day range out. It sounds like you're saying maybe weather communication, including some of these possibilities could could maybe help people say, hey, we don't maybe need to do a mandatory evacuation right now, but this is something that should be on your radar, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, after the, the tropical conference and getting to really have a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time with the folks at the Hurricane Center, these guys are great. They are the best in the business. And so when you see us on air and we're talking about the official forecast from the Hurricane Center and and not not disagreeing, but I think what we do on television is is the reason why you don't just go to your phone, look at that cone and, and, and leave it at that. We, we, we provide more in-depth detail and the weather, and while the Hurricane Center gives their detailed discussion, sometimes it may be over the heads of uh, the folks in the, the lay community. So we try and bring that down a little bit, explain it a little bit more in, in more understandable terms, but also discuss other possibilities. And, and I mean, you know, weather is not certain by any means. And we've seen storms and that, that every model said it was going to do this, every, all yeah. the guidance said it was going to do this. And for whatever reason, you know, post analysis, it didn't do that. And so there is almost never going to be a certainty with storms. But when you look at models and, and maybe they keep trending one way, that's when you talk about a high probability, yeah. possibility. And, and that certainly needs to be discussed. And I know one of the, the speakers at that tropical conference was talking about the, the best way of, of explaining these storms and, and their potential impact. And, and um, he was talking about, you know, why the cone, we need so much more than just the cone. And, and I agree, we do, but I don't know if that, that could be uh, answered in just one graphic. I think it needs the, the broadcast meteorologist sure, sure. to discuss it with, with multiple graphics, discussing all of the possibilities and all of the potential impacts from the storm. One thing that was fascinating in the post-IDA report uh, is that the Hurricane Center at the end of the report discussed how if the storm had jogged just 15 miles to the east, we would have put a far more strain on our West Bank levee system and the high likelihood that we would have seen water overtopping those West sure. Bank levees. Now, the Corps of Engineers assures us that even though those, those levees would have been overtopped, they would have been structurally sound, so they would not have failed. They would have been overtopped they're designed to be over top. They're designed to then, you know, maintain their strength. But it's just interesting that the Hurricane Center says a 15-mile jog, while would have still been an excellent forecast, would have been uh, completely different for parts of Metro New Orleans. So, you know, our levee system, despite what some leaders may say, was not put to the test in Ida. This was not, Ida was not a New Orleans storm. We did not feel the brunt. As I said, we did not get hurricane force sustained winds. And we did not see the storm surge that really would have put our levee system to the test. So something that we really tried to emphasize after the storm to, to folks is that no Metro New Orleans, you did not survive a category four storm. So for folks that looked at the next 
uh, major hurricane and say, well, I went through Ida in my house in New Orleans. We were fine. We didn't get anything. That, that wasn't a test. And, and what we said before, every storm is completely different. You know, Chris, that work that you and other broadcast meteorologists are doing, it really helps interpret these storms. You know, how should we think about them, the one we just went through, but also the one in the future, when you can help people see as bad as that was, that was not hurricane force wind sustained in Metro New Orleans, right? So if a Cat 2 is coming right for New Orleans, don't think, oh, this is this is like another Ida. It could be substantially worse. It sounds like you can help provide some interpretation for the local population. And and, and I think that that really comes down to probably our our most important role. There's the daily forecast that we give you. Is it going to rain on my kid's birthday? Yeah, we do that. But I think it's that interpreting and also building on the information uh, from the, the, you know, the one or two graphics that are issued by the National Hurricane Center that we, that we show. But it's the the addition of the 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 surge models, the the wind forecast models, the the just talking of experience of saying, hey, yeah, this isn't just a, this was, that was a great presentation by Ken Graham, who at the time was director of the National Hurricane Center, that there is no just a hurricane or storm out there. Each one can do something completely different. Sure. We're talking about, we were talking about Isaac. Isaac was a one, yet it flooded the river parishes because of the way it made landfall yeah. and the speed at which, uh, with which it moved. So for folks that, that flooded in Laplace from Ida, Ida wasn't just a category one. Uh, you know, for for so many storms, for for Houston, uh, Allison wasn't just a tropical storm. You know, there's there's no just a, a type storm, and I think that I think the the public is is now maybe more aware of that than than ever before. Uh, with with um, maybe a little bit more how in-depth we get into these discussions. That's true. I mean, every hurricane, every tropical system is different. We have wind, rain, and, and the saltwater storm surge, different combinations of each. And like you said, your neighborhood might actually get a worse impact from a tropical storm. That's like a category zero hurricane, basically, compared to a higher category system that, that didn't put the floodwater in your neighborhood. So every storm's different, different geographical patterns. And that's where the, the work you're doing, Chris, I think it's really valuable to help interpret this for the local audience to understand what's going to happen in this storm and how is that different from the ones before? So Chris, I wanted to wrap up by asking you, you know, going into the tropical weather seasons now, what does your engagement look like with your audience? Are you on social media? Are you more on TV? What, what does the interaction look like? Is it very interactive? Uh, how is it different today than maybe back in the times of Hurricane Katrina? It's, it is completely different. As I said, Katrina, it was the infancy of our website. There was no engagement with the public on our website. Um, we didn't really update manually anything. Our our systems would take satellite radar temperature maps, and you could go to view those online, and that was about it. Um, you know, 04, there was no social media. 05, no social media, or it was really in its infancy. As a matter of fact, when I got back to Mobile and having gone to college there, I was able to meet up with friends, and they were the ones that said, oh, you got to get on the Facebook. And I went, what was that? And they helped me create a Facebook account that I never did anything with for a while. You know, coming to the, the 2021 season and even the past several seasons, social media and, and our, our website, social media in particular, is sometimes a double-edged sword. It gives us a great uh, outlet for discussing these really in-depth uh, forecasts. I mean, I can go more in-depth online with viewer engagement than I can on air. I, you know, if we're doing maybe um, hourly updates on a storm that may be threatening or maybe just of, a, of an interest to the public. Uh, we may do these extended five, 10 minute weather sure. casts on, on air uh, with, no, with no public uh, interaction. Uh, but then I may take that 10 minutes and then say, hey, we're gonna cut back to programming, but if you'd like to join us, we're gonna go on to Facebook Live and continue the discussion. I may continue that discussion for another hour and a half with folks to where you get just massive amounts of viewer, um, just those curious and watching from all over the world to those that, as I said, really weather savvy are asking very detailed questions to where then I'm, wait, hold on a second. Let me scramble and get over to the vorticity map and show you what I was talking about. People know, people are interested. Let me show you the 500 humidity. And they, they love that. And so we get to maybe kind of turn hurricane weather nerd a bit here and go back to our days of, uh, you know, college level forecasting when we're doing these detailed briefings sure. for professors where people are fascinated by that. And I think they like seeing that more behind the scenes of what really goes into our forecast. 
you know, for decades, people have seen what the meteorologist does on television. Once we've done all of our forecasting, condensed those That's three, right. four hours of work to three like minutes on air. The cleaned up version, right? They, yeah, they see that they see the abbreviated, succinct version of what I've just spent hours doing. But I really think um, with impactful weather, winter weather, severe weather, tropical weather, they like to see these real detailed forecasts. And I will say they're a lot more fun to do when I know we are not at risk. If I'm discussing something that looks like it's going to stay over the East Coast and Atlantic storm, a Caribbean storm, sure. not impacting us at all. Uh, you can kind of take the more scientific approach to the discussion uh, when it's kind of shifted a bit. When we know we may be impacted by this, we then shift from the the meteorology and have to find a, a, a kind of a balancing act of the meteorology, but also the impacts and then the impacts to the the, the populace. A storm that really stands out in my mind is, you know, after seeing what happened to Katrina, again, I, I still think back on that of being young, naive, and maybe not fully grasping what had happened to then Hurricane Michael. Uh, Category 5, Panama City, I was sent out because Panama City is a big vacation spot for a lot of uh, New Orleanians, so I was sent out there for the landfall of the storm. And this is now, I'm married, older, with two kids at home. And you saw these families living in tents. We, I was there for the landfall, yeah. stayed a few days after for some of the beginnings of the, the recovery. And then we went back a month later. And it, it, I mean, there were a couple of times that I would you know, you know, hold back tears. And sure. you're talking to these families that, you know, young kids, the same age as my kids living in a tent because their home was destroyed and, and not getting the response from emergency officials, from insurance uh, folks. Uh, to get their lives back on, on, uh, you know, on uh, still moving. And so I, I think these, these past few storms that I've been able to experience as well, even since Katrina, have given me more of the perspective of the human impact. And that's what something I would stress to some of the younger meteorologists who get all excited on social media about another storm and here's where it may be going. And it's like, you need to take a step back and realize that you're forecasting a storm that may change the lives of, 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 That's right. of your followers, that people are maybe following you on Twitter, Facebook, and you're, you're, you're then, um, you know, possibly discussing something that is a life-changing event for them. It goes beyond just the excitement of meteorology yeah. at that point. Chris, I've noticed living in South Louisiana eight years and now in Galveston, Texas, the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history happened right in my neighborhood. I've noticed if I can keep things factual, what we're expecting from wind and storm surge, I think some of these, especially younger meteorologists that are coming from different regions, uh, you know, sometimes I've picked up an excitement or almost they're rooting for a big landfall with big impacts. It's like you need to come to our neighborhoods for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And this is going to affect someone's grandma and someone's daughter. Right. I mean, these are these are big life altering storms. So I think that is an advantage of living in these communities that have gone through these things. We it's very personal for us. We I, I root every year for the storms to stay out to sea. You know, I, I'm fascinated by meteorology. I know. And, and I'm sure you do, too. Uh, once you've seen people go through a lot of hardship and not just storms, right? We've just had a pandemic and financial issues and terrorism and all these other things. People are going through a lot. The last thing they need is a roof off their house. But um, it, it, I, I think for a lot of us that have experience and, and live in these areas, it, it, I think for us, it helps us shift to be more factual and just, you know, this is what we're looking at. Um, and, and if anything, we're rooting for low impacts. And, uh, and if, uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, as far as this being personal for people, do people ever reach out to you with, you know, should I get flood insurance or should I evacuate or do, do, do people interact on that level with you uh, of asking help on how to make personal decisions? And then how do you handle that? They they do and, and you know it's it's almost like in the beginning I can handle a few you know half dozen dozen individual what should I do type um, type questions and, and you are able to 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 maybe get a little bit more in depth to hey I'm in this neighborhood and and I don't know what I should do and I could tell them hey look you're on high ground if you're comfortable with you know possibly weeks of no power you have. Uh, food and water, you're comfortable with the, the forecast, then by all means, stay. It, you know, it's an expensive, uh, you know, I don't sure. recommend that everybody leave for all storms. Sure. It is an expensive task and it's and it's draining. I mean, there are elderly and and, and those, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, at risk that, that cannot 
survive for it's 10 plus hours on the road. Very stressful and evacuation. It, it is a very stressful time. And so I kind of advise, look, if, if you have these set of criteria, you're comfortable with the forecast, you are on high ground, you don't think the wind is going to be a, a, a major issue in terms of trees around your property. We have a lot of areas on the North Shore with pine trees that sure. snap in a good breeze and can come right onto your home. Uh, you are you have the ability to have power in your home or you're comfortable without, then by all means, stay. Now, of course, areas along the coastline, there are areas that you're going to have to leave every time no matter what. Uh, but But I kind of advise, no, you don't have to leave. Or I advise... Yeah, you know what? My family is in that same part of town, and I've told them to leave. I, I don't know if I necessarily want to take on the responsibility of, well, Chris Franklin told us sure, we sure. didn't have to evacuate. So all I can do is, as you said, give them the factual information that here's what you could see in terms of impact. If you're fine with that, then then you make that decision. However, I'm advising my family to leave. I can't leave, but... I'm telling them to go. And, you know, where we are in, in Jefferson Parish now, we're high ground. We really don't have any trees that would have been a major issue. Um, I think we would have been fine structurally, and thank, thank goodness our home was structurally fine. But I have two young kids. I know if we lost power, first off, I really can't come home for a few days. And two, I don't want to have my wife in a hot house with two kids sure. bored out of their mind. So it was more of a no, as far as the kids go, you you need to leave with them. And so I advise that. I said, look, I got two young kids. If you have young kids, older parents, older adults living in your home, or those that just need, you know, they're on oxygen or, or they, sure, they have sure. to have electricity, no, you need to go. Chris, I really like that approach because you're not telling people what to do, but you're arming them with information and helping them think through some possibilities. Like you said, there might be even two people on the same street. You know, one is ca caring for their elderly grandfather who's on oxygen. Losing power can be a huge issue, but then maybe you have a college student who says, hey, I can eat canned tuna fish for a couple days. You know, it, it, so it, it seems like you're arming people with information. And I've noticed, I feel like people usually make the best choice for themselves and their, and their family if they're making an informed decision. Right. And, you know, one thing that was different from Katrina is that for many storms, after a couple of days of no power, you can then make the decision, hey, you know what, this is pretty uncomfortable. Our our energy officials, Entergy here, are saying it may be another couple of weeks before we get power back on. I'm going to leave now. Well, with Katrina, obviously with the flooding, that wasn't an option. So we do discuss that as a possibility that, hey, look, if, if the flooding becomes more of an issue. Now, thankfully, Ida never really looked like it was going to be a surge and flooding yeah. from, from, from Gulf saltwater uh, uh, intrusion as much as other storms. So that was never really much of a worry. So we did say, look, if it gets uncomfortable after a few days, you probably will still be able to leave if you need to. But obviously with Katrina, that was not the case, which is why, you know, we have to treat every storm differently. Cat 5, Hurricane Michael in Panama City, just because of their terrain flooding and because of how fast it developed, surge wasn't much of an issue for them. So it was kind of the same thing. If you think you're in an area that you want to ride it out, then by all means, ride it out. But if you realize after a couple of days, it's miserable at least you do have the ability to leave. However, with that said, New Orleans is a city surrounded by water. There's always a possibility of some of our our exit routes of going under or sustaining damage to where that, that suddenly isn't a possibility. Heck, after Katrina, the twin span failed and the causeway went underwater. We kind of lost a couple of our routes to even leave the city had you stayed. Chris, what about a rapidly intensifying hurricane 80 miles east of where I'd attract something like that, where it is a big hit on New Orleans. But again, you don't have the 72 hour lead time. It, it, it's 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 one of those. That's when it's the, you know, remain in place. This is this is why we advise to having supplies at yeah. your home ready to go for the entirety of a hurricane season to where, hey, look, if you can't get out, you might have a few hour window after that. You're, you're better off just remaining in place and having the supplies that you need. Obviously, one major expense is is getting these whole home generators. Um, they're great to have, uh, but we, we do reports all the time about these generators and how many folks die from carbon monoxide or just not using the generators properly. So while they can be life-saving for folks that need the power or just the comfort of having some electricity, they, they too are very dangerous. And so you know, we treat every storm completely different. The, yeah. the areas to evacuate to, we do a, I do a map and I say where to go. Each storm is going to have different evacuation points. So something I, I stress is, 
have an idea of of kind of northwest and east of where you could go in a storm sure. because there may be routes north and west just based on the track of a storm yeah. that those are off limits right now your best bet is going east when i with ida i told my family go to the florida beaches are like really and i said florida beaches will be fine as a matter of yeah. fact they went to they were a little bit beyond destin the kids were able to play in a pool the the day ida was making landfall to them it was nothing going on it, they were fine and so at least having a, a basic plan is probably the least you can do in preparation for hurricane season and then it's just that personal responsibility of i'm going to give you all the facts as you said armed with the facts to then make that decision, which is best for you and and those that you may be taking care of. Yeah, and like you said, having supplies so that you're not having to go to the store the day before, or you know, as the rush is on for water and food, and because, like you said, some storms you're going to probably shelter in place, other ones you're going to evac. There may be multiple evacuation possibilities. It sounds like you're on the air trying to help guide people the best you can into these different possibilities. And and that that window becomes small, or or the the number of options maybe becomes smaller when you have these rapidly intensifying. Sure. And you don't have the the days. Yeah. notice you know that options we're not, we're not tracking a storm necessarily off the african coast for the last two yeah. weeks and we know exactly where it's going and you've had plenty of lead time that's right the ones that just spin up in the caribbean or the gulf or just you know off the east coast of florida like katrina we don't really get that that massive lead time that people think we're going to have chris really appreciate you coming on the geo trek podcast are there any last any last thoughts you'd like to share just on hurricane preparedness what you want people to you know one last thought to take home as we go into the heart of this hurricane season yeah well i guess for as far as this season goes you know it's been quiet i've done a few talks back to uh early july that i had a graphic where i listed the three storms that we've had so far this season talking about how they were all shorties less than 48 hours and knowing I had a few other talks coming up and thought, oh, I'm going to have to update that graphic before my next talk. And here we are mid-August, and I haven't had to do anything to that graphic. We're still the same in terms of our numbers as we were in early July. That does not bode for a quiet season. And as we know, we might, if we saw four storms this season, the three that we've had and one more, but that one more became a five in the Gulf and hits Houston, Texas, 2022 was a substantial and significant year for hurricanes it only takes that one so yeah. even with these lulls even with the slow season that's why i'm never a huge fan of the the seasonal forecast while they have their place uh you look at 2019 very active season u.s was almost not impacted at all yeah. it was it was minimal you know then you have the seasons of 2021 2022 or uh, 2020 2021 that were obviously very impactful especially to southeast louisiana but then you look back in history, the you know the the season uh, ninety two with Andrew that was a slow season. You look back at, at some of the other major impactful storms that happened in slow seasons, to where just because a season has this this lull or we're expecting it to be below average, you, I think your your awareness and your preparation needs to be the same each and every season, which is why, you know, if we ever get a below average season forecast again, hopefully soon. I don't want that to be the, you know, all clear the season and go ahead and don't worry about anything because we're not expecting that many storms. It it only takes one. And I, I think it's become kind of cliche, but I think it's still very important to, to stress of, of, of as far as the tropical threats. It's, it only takes one. Obviously, with 2019 and uh, or 2020, 2021, it only takes what, like eight or nine threats that we had here that it was just miserable. But, you know, it just takes that one to, to completely ruin your year. Chris, that's a great reminder. You know, 92 is such a great example. Andrew was a such a high impact storm coming in really the southern part of Miami as a cat five, then over to Louisiana. But that was the A storm in late August, right? Yeah, it, it was the first storm in a yeah. slow season that had a slow start. Right. But it was that was the first storm. And you look at the, the impact of Betsy and Camille. Those were the second and third storms of the season. That was still early in the, the season itself as far as the, the names go. So it doesn't take the the, the late letters that can be the, the, the powerhouses. It can be these early season, the first storms that that 
become the, the, the life-changing storms. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good reminder. We have to stay vigilant, have to stay prepared. And like you said, it only takes one. Well, I'm hoping this year, I know Louisiana's had so many impacts in the uh, recent years. I'm really hoping you all get a break. I hope all of the U.S. gets a break. We'll just have to watch and see, but just appreciate the good work you're doing. I know the folks there in South Louisiana appreciate it too. And uh, I'll be following you through this hurricane season. And I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You provided us with a lot of great insights, education, and some of these amazing stories of what you've lived through. Hal, I appreciate it. it. You know, I think this far removed from Katrina, it doesn't bring back too many memories. There's actually a show on Apple TV, Five Days of Memorial, about what happened at the Memorial Hospital. And folks have said, oh, can you? I said, I don't know if I can watch it. I don't know if I can truly relive some of that. But looking back on some of the stories, if we can learn from it, I, you know, it, it's it's a little easier to share. But, but some of those more um, just devastating type stories from Katrina are are still even this far removed, kind of hard to relive and, and kind of bring back a little bit of PF, uh, PTSD, not not the extent of what some folks went through, but it, it certainly is still a, a harsh reminder for folks here. Wow, such deep insights from Chris on these two podcasts. He touched on a few really important points about disaster recovery in this episode. Something that really stood out to me is the upheaval people endure when going through a major natural disaster. He mentioned how his high school, the school where his brother still attended, was flooded and how his brothers had to transfer to school in Baton Rouge, more than 70 miles away from New Orleans. When I lived in South Louisiana, I came across many stories like this. People would reflect and say things like, I did my sixth grade year in Baton Rouge or some other city in the region. Some of them eventually returned to New Orleans. Others did not. I would hear stories of people who worked in the same restaurant for 25 years and then Katrina destroyed it and they weren't really sure what they should do next. Nearly all of these people were displaced at least for weeks to months and sometimes years or longer. So the first action item we can take from this podcast is to look out for such people, especially if you live nearby a location that's hard hit by a major disaster. We might see refugees from the disaster relocating to your city. We often think about giving money or donation to storm victims, but when people are displaced, their world has been turned completely upside down. Sometimes a really big way we can help is by providing a listening ear and trying to help ease their transition. In the restaurant example I gave, maybe you have a friend or family member that works in a restaurant that could connect the storm refugee with a possible job lead. Sometimes even just a few minutes of your time can help revolutionize the life of a storm victim. I also wanted to share that when people move to a disaster-prone area, like a coastline vulnerable to hurricanes, they often expect the day of the disaster is the biggest test. But long-term residents know it's the weeks, months, and years after the disaster that are usually the hardest part, as long as nobody in their family or friends suffered injury or death in the storm itself. It's been well documented that indirect accidents kill more people than direct storm damage in hurricanes. Indirect accidents include electrocution, carbon monoxide poisoning from unventilated generators, and poisonous animal bites like snake bites. Many of these fatalities occur in the days and weeks after the storm, compared to direct storm impacts like a tree falling on someone that happens on the day of the storm. Be aware of this if you're new to a, say, hurricane-prone coastline. The weeks and months after the storm can be grueling. It will go better for you if you have all the supplies you need and adequate insurance and have your documentation organized. So, for example, if you have flood insurance, all these different types of insurance, if you have everything organized and you can contact your insurance company right after the event, that's going to help you get back on your feet a lot quicker. Also, obviously, having supplies like water and food and all these things that you need to survive, maybe without power for a long period of time. Also, if you have a friend or family member impacted by a hurricane, follow up with them weeks to months after the storm. Their phone will be blowing up on the day of the storm with everyone sharing their concerns, but most people will soon forget about them as the news moves on. You'll make a huge impact in their lives if you reach out to them a few weeks or months after the storm to see what they need. I also really love Chris's approach to talking people through decision-making before a storm strikes. He said he gets a lot of inquiries from people looking for guidance about if they should evacuate or not. He reflected that he will not tell people what they should do 
but he will try to help them understand potential impacts. People will often make the best choice for themselves and their family if they're aware of the impacts and are making informed decisions. Forecasters can help people out by sharing insights on the likeliness of storm impacts, like the depth of potential flood water, strength of winds, likeliness of power outages, or tree falls. Two people in the same area may make different evacuation decisions based on their life circumstances. Another way Chris said that he words such responses is by sharing what he and his family are deciding to do. That's just factual information that does not imply what others should or shouldn't do, but it can help people in their own decision making. So, for example, he'll say, hey, my family's going to evacuate for this storm. That's the decision we're making, and that can help others make decisions, too. I often hear about people who do not live in hurricane-prone areas questioning why more people in hurricane zones don't evacuate. But after 14 years living along the upper Texas coast in South Louisiana, I get it now. Evacuation is expensive and extremely stressful. Hotels can be filled up for hundreds of miles and gas stations can run dry. Evacuation traffic can become gridlock and many of the shelters don't take pets. The list goes on and on. There are many reasons why people do not evacuate. And add to the fact that people may have evacuated several times already. And when they got back home, their store, their home was not damaged. So they thought, you know, I've unnecessarily evacuated before. I'm not going to do it again. All these factors can lead to people staying home and riding up the storm right where they're at. If you're a young meteorologist or science communicator, you can provide a steady voice in your community by sharing a factual message that's not overly emotional and is in line with the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service forecast or other credible sources. Wise veterans of Gulf Coast hurricanes have advised me to give a buffer and always plan for winds one category higher than forecast and flood water a little deeper than forecast. Chris, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. We wish you the best. And most of all, we're wishing that Louisiana can catch a break this hurricane season after two consecutive seasons when upper level Cat 4 hurricanes with 150 mile an hour winds made landfall in the Bayou State. We're really interested to watch your coverage on WWL-TV if any storms threaten the Gulf this year. You're such a great science and weather communicator. I think it's really going to help us all by staying tuned to your forecast. We've been reflecting on Hurricane Katrina, which struck the northern Gulf Coast 17 years ago today on August 29, 2005, impacting people from South Louisiana all the way to the Florida Panhandle, and of course our friends in Mississippi and South Alabama as well. Hey everyone, stay safe out there and remain prepared for natural disasters in your community. This is Dr. Hal signing off. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrack Podcast.